Stay in the know this summer with a membership to the DSR Network. For more than five years, Deep State Radio has been on top of all the key foreign policy and national security stories impacting the world. We're grateful to our members who make all of this possible and hope that you will consider supporting our work by becoming a member. Members get access to our expanded offering of exclusive bonus content, the opportunity to participate in discussions via our member Slack community, our weekly member briefings, and our DSR Daily Brief newsletter delivered to your inbox each evening. Members also receive all of our content via private member feed that you can add to your podcast app of choice. Help us celebrate our five years together by becoming a member. Join now for just $5 per month or $50 per year. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy. Thank you very much. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from beautiful Ann Arbor, Michigan, where we are making a brief stop. And I am joined today by three of the best of the best, including Doug Lute, former U.S. ambassador to NATO, former U.S. Army Lieutenant General. May I don't know where you are, Doug. Where are you in our nation's capital? In, no, no, no. I'm in Midtown, New York. Midtown, New York. Good to see you. And Rosa Brooks from a location I don't recognize, of Georgetown University law professor and associate dean of thingamabobs and other stuff. Thingamabobs and thingamajigs. Thingamajigs, yes. I'm upstairs in in a kid's old bedroom because there are so many people in my house. I'm hiding. Okay. (laughs) Um, Well, good to see you. And uh, of course, we're joined by Ed Luce of the Financial Times, who I can tell is in Washington, D.C. How are you doing, Ed? Doing well. I'm I'm in an empty house, so I'm I'm hiding from all the ghosts. <laughs> well, as are we all all the time, Ed. So today, the day we're recording this, August 23rd, is Ukrainian Flag Day, and tomorrow is Ukrainian Independence Day. The people of Ukraine are entering the or uh, completing, I guess, the seventh month of this war, and things seem to have ratcheted up in terms of level of concern recently. The United States embassy issued a warning to its employees that uh, Russian attacks on civilian targets and infrastructure were going to increase. A Ukrainian worker was killed at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant as the Russians continue to play their game of nuclear roulette there, thus threatening not just Ukraine, but themselves. Ukraine seems to be teeing up a major offensive in and around Kherson, and the rumors are that the United States is going to 
allocate another $3 billion in funds. Sounds to me like we're at an inflection point in terms of the, the likelihood that this is going to get tougher for a while. What do you think, Doug? Well, I think there's certainly those signs. I mean, the nuclear power plant being held hostage is probably uh, case number one. But there are also some positive signs, I think. For example, the grain deal brokered apparently with, uh, with the help of the UN Secretary General, but also with Turkey playing a role. And now we actually have, unlike weeks past, we actually have Ukrainian grain flowing out of the Odessa port and into the world marketplace, which is, which is really good news. There are some reports that the UN might play a similar role with regard to demilitarizing or overseeing the nuclear power plant with expert advice and so forth. That would be stabilizing and very good news, although I'm, I'm suspect that the Russians aren't going to be interested in that. Uh, meanwhile, in the battlefield, things are pretty much stalemated. While both sides take a bit of a tactical pause, trying to sort of garner their resources and get prepared for what's coming. So sort of good news and bad news. It's a mix. Yeah, Rosa, as we uh, speak, there's a UN Security Council meeting talking about the nuclear power plant hostage taking to which Doug referred. That situation is, I mean, he mentioned a positive turn, but it's, it's certainly a very worrisome one at the moment. What's, what's your outlook towards Ukraine at this, at this milestone? Well, you know me, David, my outlook is always <laughs> pessimistic. <grim and> bleak, <laughs> pessimistic. No, it does seem like it's a it's a sort of a dangerous moment. It's it's to use the overused term, it's an inflection point potentially. Of course, we never really know if something's an inflection point until we see if it actually inflects, but it could. We have several several things that could heat things up quite dramatically. You know, one being, as you mentioned, this is Ukraine's independence week. And there's plenty of muttering to suggest that the Russians may have special horrors store for Ukraine to punish them for thinking that they get to be independent this week. The situation at the nuclear power plant also remains pretty critical. Apparently, one member of the staff has died as a result of Russian shelling. And, and that's obviously a catastrophe waiting to happen unless things get changed. And of course, we have the the car bomb killing in in. Russia of Daria Dugina, daughter of a very right-wing hardline commentator within herself in her own right, but also the daughter of a extremely hardline pro-Kremlin Russian empire fantasist uh, as well. And the Russians are, of course, blaming this on Ukraine and claiming it was a, an assassination carried out by Ukraine special forces. U Ukraine denies that. There's no particular evidence to suggest that what Russia is saying is, in fact, true, and, and, and in fact, a good deal of evidence to suggest that this doesn't make any sense, you know, that even if the Ukrainians had wanted to do this, that they didn't have the capacity and they didn't do it. But those those three things together certainly raise the up the ante in terms of the potential risks in the next week or so, you know, in terms of some kind of really stepped up Russian action. So we'll see. But I do think that this this week, things feel more unstable and dangerous than they have felt in the last month or so when it seemed like things were, you know, for better or worse, settling into set, settling into slog territory. Ed, what's your outlook at this moment? Well, I, I think that Doug and Rosa have done a good summary, but I, I think sort of first to try to stand back and look more generally, the, the, there seem to be two trends going going on here that cancel each other out or that the, 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 say different things. The first is that 
Ukraine is regaining the initiative. I mean, the, these attacks behind you know, Russian lines in Crimea, the audacity of them, not just the sort of military damage uh, that they've done, but also the psychological impact on Russia, that it is now vulnerable in its main sort of supply land bridge from Crimea. That shows that the impact of the weapons and the drones and the artillery, et cetera, that we're getting through and the behind the lines operations that the Ukrainians are able to pull off are becoming more and more effective. And so the hope, you know, is that there would be some big game for Ukraine before winter, before this conflict sort of gets bogged down in winter. And that's looking more and more plausible. But the contrary narrative is, of course, the winter is coming and Western resolve will be tested narrative about gas prices, inflation, recession, possible recession in Europe, a new government in Italy that is much less united. Well, a probable new government in Italy that is much less supportive of the NATO-led backing of Ukraine. And, you know, the midterm elections in November, which might bring Republican control of the House. I have to say, though, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit skeptical of the Putin will break the West and, well, break Ukraine and the West this winter narrative. I think the West's more united than it was three, four months ago. I think Macron has given up trying to sort of follow Kissinger's advice and broker a peace deal between Putin and Zelensky. He's now much more behind. He's reelected and he's much more behind the general NATO consensus than France was before. And pretty rapidly, Europe has stockpiled on gas. I think Putin wielded that weapon too early in the summer. He gave Europe enough warning time to stockpile gas, to get alternative LNG suppliers, and to get into a position where gas storage in Europe could withstand a normal winter with zero Russian supplies coming through Nord Stream 1. It's down to 20% of normal supplies right now, but it looks like Europe could withstand zero Russian supplies, barring an extreme winter. So I'm feeling fairly un-Rosa-like, not optimistic, but not pessimistic. A couple of directions I, w- I, I would like to take this from here. Doug, one thing is that I've noticed over the past couple of weeks, Ukrainian rhetoric, which has always been, we want to go back to the 2008 borders, ha- has sort of increased in that regard and said, we are not going to stop until we've gotten back everything that's ours. These attacks in Crimea seem to have energized that. But the question is, are they sustainable? Are they kind of one-offs to demoralize the Russians? Will Ukraine have to focus on Kherson to such a degree that they can't keep those going? What's your outlook for the conflict in the South? On the military front, I think Ukraine is a long way from having the offensive capability, just the military potential to actually assert itself and regain all the ground now occupied by Russia. Locally, so in the westernmost part of Kherson province, to include the city of Kherson, and, and frankly, everything west of the Dnieper River, I think they've got a fair chance of pulling off a operationally significant offensive there and potentially trapping perhaps 20,000 Russian troops on the western side of that river. You know, they've, they've already taken a very deliberate approach to targeting the bridges 
that resupply those Russian troops now, uh, and they're increasingly isolating those troops. So I'll be watching very carefully what they're able to do by way of offensive capability there in Kherson. But it's one thing to shell or rocket with precision strikes, stationary Russian forces. It's another thing to take the ground. And what I haven't seen is the sort of massing of offensive potential. So this is armored infantry, tanks, aviation support, and so forth, that would be required to actually follow up on the isolation strikes and actually take the, seize the ground and hold it in the face of Russian defenders. So as Rosa mentioned, we seem to be passing perhaps an inflection point. If we are into a new phase here, I think that new phase would be signaled by the ability of Ukraine to actually go on the offensive. And it's not clear to me that they yet have that potential. You know, I, I noticed, Rosa, Mike McFall, the former U.S. ambassador to Russia, tweeted out something yesterday or, or earlier today, which is a message he's repeated throughout the conflict, which is, if we want Ukraine to win, we have to give them more weapons. We have to meet all of their, their needs. And we've talked to you periodically about whether U.S. support was going to abate. There was a, a big announcement of support a couple of weeks ago. There's another one, looks like forthcoming perhaps tomorrow, associated with the Independence Day. Apparently, what we will be supplying them with is not from our stockpiles, but will actually be new equipment direct, you know, that will go straight to Ukraine. I'm kind of pleasantly surprised by the stick to and resilience and support of the U.S. throughout this. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, so today's news suggests that probably sometime tomorrow, $3 billion in additional uh, military assistance will be announced by the Biden administration. Doug, I'm going to completely defer to you to, to explain to us exactly what this means, but at least the way it's being spun in the news is that this is uh, military assistance that's focused much more on Ukraine's longer term military strength and not so much designed to meet the crisis of the moment. Uh, you know, these aren't weapons that they're going to get in two weeks and use in three weeks. These are this is a material that they would potentially get, you know, significantly further down the road. So on the one hand, I, you know, I suppose from the Ukrainian perspective, they would sort of rather have things now, more now than than more later. On the other hand, it does suggest a a it suggests both the US Biden administration optimism about outcomes here as well as a longer term commitment, because there's no point in providing, there's no point in in spending $3 billion on longer term military assistance to a country that you don't think is going to exist a year from now. Um, so I, you know, it certainly, it seems to suggest that the Biden administration thinks that Ukraine is going to be there. It's going to be worth supporting Ukraine. There's going to be a Ukrainian government that we want to support in the long run. Whether it will mark any changes near term, it sounds like the answer to that is no, not really. Um, David, you commented on the my previous comments that we public support tends to wane. I don't think the administration's support is waning. I, I think the question just becomes: Does congressional support at some point wane? I think that I think the administration remains committed. I think it remains to be seen, you know, especially six months from now, whether uh, they can get whether they can get spending packages through Congress. So I think the Biden administration was smart with regard to congressional relations to go in early and get this $40 billion appropriation, right, which has now allowed them flexibility to 
announced these a billion dollar this week, 800 million last week, 3 billion potentially tomorrow because they're 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 in charge of the they're in charge of the distribution of that that 40 billion. So I think that's smart. My take is that as the administration makes this announcement about support in the medium term, say over the next 3 years, that increasingly the shift will be from materiel to training. Because if you're going to train NCOs, if you're going to train officers and so forth, it takes more than a couple months. And if Ukraine ends up looking like the victor here, it's going to need, in order to get there to victory, it's going to need increased trained manpower. And then to sustain its independence and sustain its security, it's going to likewise depend on that manpower. So maybe this is an announcement, which is a US equivalent of the British program to train. 10,000 Ukrainians every 120 days or something. There's an ongoing training program sponsored by the Brits. And I think that would be welcome. Well, as we've talked about on this show, just parenthetically, while there's you know some fair criticism of what the Biden, uh, the Obama administration did in response to the initial invasion, because they were disinclined to do a you know aggressive amount of support in terms of weapon systems and so forth, they defaulted to doing training. And that to train that training for a number of years has proven to be extremely useful come this phase of the conflict. So that's it's an important factor. Ed, when I heard the announcement that the U.S. was expecting more Russian attacks in the next few days, potentially targeting civilian areas and infrastructure, an echoed announcement from Zelensky saying, be prepared, this could get pretty nasty. It reminded me or it, it, it resonated with these articles that have been running in The Washington Post recently about how the U.S. intelligence community sort of got this right. And, and in the early phases prior to the launch of this war, people were resistant to their insights, but that now there is a sense that the United States is well-placed with sources within the Russian government, that the analysis has been pretty good along the way here. I know you've talked at recent, you know, in different fora to people like Bill Burns, other people in the intelligence community. Seems like among the stories here has been a turnaround in the credence and respect being given to the USIC. There is. I mean, I think a quite marked change. I mean, you can understand why there was some European skepticism, you know, given the history of the Iraq war, etc. I wasn't at the Munich Security Forum in mid to late February, but um, a number of my colleagues were there. In fact, my wife, who works with the Aspen Security Forum, was there too. And this was a week before Russia's invasion. And even then, there was widespread dismissal um, or downplaying of the the US-British forecasts and intelligence findings. And famously, of course, the French intelligence community dismissed it entirely and said it's not going to happen and discredited themselves really quite hugely. So the era of deeply discounting U.S. intelligence, I think, is probably over for the time being because of because of the excellent track record. And Bill Burns, you mentioned as CIA director, has been really, really savvy in the way that he has preemptively used intelligence not just to warn allies and the Ukrainians of what's going to happen, but also to you know mess with Putin's head, I think, to some degree. 
And so this is a, a very rapid, it's a case study of a very rapid turnaround in institutional reputation, deservedly, which means that I would take forecasts of Russian, this, this six month stage of the war with uh, autumn coming and with the Ukrainian Independence Day, I would take the intelligence warnings fairly seriously that there's going to be some, some Russian, some new Russian initiative um, in the coming days. And e even if there weren't intelligence warnings, I think we should expect that given, given how the initiative does seem to be switch, shifting back to the Ukrainians. Yeah, no, it definitely seems like the Intelligence Committee is reclaiming what some of us, perhaps only I am old enough to think of as E.F. Hutton status. I don't know if you remember the commercials in which people would say when E.F. Hutton talks, people listen and then everybody would lean in to hear. And I suspect that if Bill Burns or Jake Sullivan or Tony Blinken calls somebody up and says, here's what we think nowadays, people take the call and they say, I want to know, you know. Including, by the way, I think the Ukrainians, who were also caught a little flat-footed by some of this. This is the point in the show where we take a break and say thanks to everybody in the general public for joining us. And that if you want to get the whole discussion and all of our discussions of each podcast, become a member. Go to the dsrnetwork.com and click on membership. And for $5 a month, you can support what we're doing. Support programming like this and get to hear the rest of really interesting discussions, which we're about to continue with about maybe a, a war in, in Europe people didn't know was coming. And for those of you who are leaving, we'll see you soon. And for those of you who remember, stand by. We'll be right back.